0: If you start with what you think is good and you're just open to listening, your customers will tell you exactly where to go. You have to bring your thing to it and then listen.
1: Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Studio Podcast, your go-to resource to help you run and grow a better business. I'm your host, Chris Allen, and today we are talking with American ice cream maker and entrepreneur, Jenny Britton. Jenny Britton is the founder of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams, an award-winning artisanal ice cream company headquartered in Columbus, Ohio. In today's episode, Jenny shares her incredible journey of leaving art school to create an ice cream empire devoted to making the finest ice creams the world has ever known. In this episode, you'll be inspired by Jenny's passion for art, her unrelenting spirit, and the insatiable appetite for innovation that continues to bring people together and inspire business minds around the globe. From her tenacity to take creative risks to the grit and determination to navigate her business through a time of crisis, Jenny's insights will propel you forward in your own entrepreneurial pursuits.
2: I want to say welcome to Jenny Britton. Thank you for coming to the Entrepreneur Studio all the way out here in the middle of Oklahoma City.
0: Thank you for having me. I love Oklahoma City and I'm so happy to be here. Yeah,
2: we're really, we're really happy to have you here. I think, like we were talking about earlier, it has been amazing seeing how your story really embodies the story of what every small business entrepreneur hopes to achieve. Right. And so I, I just wanna I wanna unpack some of that and make sure that everybody hears, hears your story. But like it's the thing for me is this was the connection I was trying to make. I was like, how do you go from being in college to just saying, I'm going to go make ice cream to winning a James Beard award. <laughs> you know, and like since 90, 1996, you've sold what? 89.3 million
0: pints of ice cream. And it's like, how did that happen? And where did that come from? Oh my God, that's right. You guys are mathletes here. So uh, that's yeah. a great number. Oh yeah. Wow. You guys figured that. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, I would just say the, the short answer to that question is vision, effort and time. And one of the things that I do differently, I think in my business or I've done differently in my life or not so differently, but like at least um, in terms of like what, what the media tends to cover is that I've taken a really long time, we've taken a really long time at Jenny's to build this company. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of really great reasons for that. We didn't know what we were doing or I didn't know what I was doing in the beginning. But I knew what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I knew that nobody else was doing it and I, I was going to have to figure it out. And when you do something like that, it takes time. But not only does it take time to figure out how to do it, it takes time to figure out what you can do. So we, um, I knew that I wanted in the beginning to get really great dairy, for instance, really great milk and cream, and I thought that would be easy, and it wasn't. Wow. The dairy industry is very close, very difficult to work with right now um, in the last you know 20 or 30 years. Um, that was really the beginning of it, and then I started working at dairies, and I started learning about milk proteins over time and what we can do with milk proteins that's different than what anybody else has done in ice cream. and because I was looking for good dairy, I learned that. And so there were a lot of things like that over this time that I spent building Jenny's over these decades, actually, where I learned what's possible, you know, by starting really small and building very slowly. And that has become our advantage in the world today.
2: That's amazing. One of the things that I try to ask everybody sitting on this side of the table is, um, you know there there was a moment that was either the catalyst or there was a spark. But there was some connection you made, looking back in retrospective. What was really the what was that like kind of the story of the biggest moment that was like the spark or the birthplace of this this idea to to do ice cream and to 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 do it maybe the way that you're doing it? Like back in your life, where were you like, this is the moment that was born?
0: And there was a moment. And it was, um, I have to take you back because there were things that were happening in my life at the time. That enabled the moment, right? So they don't. The moments don't just come out of nowhere in a a way. They seem like they do, but what had really happened is that I had spent years kind of on this in this creative time of my life. Um, I had gotten myself into Ohio State University, uh, which was not a given at all. I was studying art. Oh yes, the Ohio State University, pretty much my backyard even now, um, in Columbus. Um, I was studying art and art history, but really not on a tract. I mean, I was really just doing whatever I wanted there, mm-hmm. which is really fun at Ohio State or places like Ohio State because it's enormous and there is an expert on everything. So one semester they might do vampire folklore and I was like, there for that, you know. <laughs> and then the next one it's like ancient Hellenistic economies and I was like, that sounds cool. So I go over there and take the hardest class I ever took. you know, Lots of art history, lots of fine arts, I love illustration, so a lot of that. And I was meeting a lot of people. And I was also working in a French bakery that I adored with a wonderful French family that ran it. And I was learning about ingredients. I mean, I would literally lock myself in the pantry and just eat the little Valrona batons that you would put in the pan au chocolat that they made from scratch there. I mean, it was incredible. I met this guy who worked in the chemistry department at Ohio State, and he was Parisian. And, oh, I was like so interested in him cuz i had just been in the midwest i mean sure. i hadn't traveled anywhere and he was studying something but it had to do with scent and so he would bring me little vials of scent from the chemistry department mm. and i was like wow i'm really connected to my sense of smell and so i started studying perfuming and ancient perfuming in particular and thinking that maybe i could use that in art or that i would maybe become a perfumer and Pastry. I, you know, one night I'm going to a dinner party. I'm thinking, what I'm gonna, what am I gonna do? I'd been collecting mostly essential oils and mm-hmm. making scents and blending perfumes and like thinking about ancient perfuming. And I decided to use one of those in ice cream, store-bought ice cream. So I got vanilla and I got chocolate and I made like a spicy chocolate with a cayenne essential oil and I made a rose petal vanilla, just by dripping one drop of like this extreme, this like $400 an ounce um, Bulgarian rose into vanilla bean ice cream. And then the cayenne, which doesn't have a scent, but it just has heat yeah. or the physical sensation of heat on your tongue. And when I took a bite of those ice creams, it was like, I knew my whole life would be ice cream. I knew in that moment, I created, I knew who I would become. Mm-hmm. And it has been true. What I didn't know is how long it would take the effort. I didn't know how much, I didn't know what it would take. I didn't know anything about having a business. I didn't know anything about making even ice cream. Yeah. I just knew that the rest of my life would be occupied with ice cream. So I started making ice creams, And from then on, everybody in my friend group knew me as the ice cream girl. (laughs) Everywhere I went, I took ice cream. Everybody loved it. I was always scenting ice cream. But what happened was, when I took a bite of that ice cream, everything that I had been playing with or learning about, all the passions that I had been following at Ohio State and beyond, I was really on my own very early. And that was a blessing for me because I didn't have parents that were saying, like, stay on track, get a degree. I was doing whatever I wanted to do. And because I was doing that, I was studying ancient perfuming, so I understood how fats work. I understood that, like, that ancient perfumes would use fat that was solid at room temperature, but melted on contact with your skin. From my grandmother, I knew that butter did that, right? She would always say, don't put the onion next to the butter. So butterfat is the fat that's in milk and cream. So ice cream mm-hmm. is literally the perfect carrier of scent. It melts below body temperature. As soon as it hits your tongue, it relaxes and all the flavor comes out, all the scent actually. And so ice cream is really about scent. And in that moment, like all of this stuff hits me. You can tell stories with scent. This is art. You can. This is a craft. This is something I can do with my hands. This is something that keeps me busy. This is like um, a way for me to have a business, which I always wanted to have. I didn't want to work for anybody else ever <laughs> in my life, um, including teachers. So it was it was a path to freedom for me. Actually, that's exactly how I looked at it.
2: Path to freedom. It's like I could see you. I mean, as soon as you said that, I was like, here you are in front of the freezer, and you've got ice, a pint of ice cream in one hand, and you've got the essential oils in the next. And you're like,
1: I can do this.
2: I can do something. Like your whole life, you know, unfolds like right there. That That's really, um, that is a moment <laughs> for sure.
0: Yeah. And then I had to learn everything. I had to learn how to make ice cream. I had to learn about um, how an ice cream machine works. I had to become a chemist. I mm-hmm. mean, I was an artist and I thought in my generation, like, and actually they still do this to kids sometimes, but they literally separated the kids that were supposed to be science and math kids from the kids that were supposed to be like English and art. Right. And I was always in that side, the, the language and art and um, literature side, and so therefore, I was like, I don't know, almost like shunned from science. And I really believed that story. I believed I was bad at science and wow. math. Turns out, I'm actually pretty good at it.
2: You know, I, that is really interesting. The, the The sense that you have of not being good at something because of what somebody told you, and you end up being really good at it, right? That that is something that I think a lot of a lot you of young, young adults is. go through.
0: Yes, and we and I'm like always there because. Ice cream is such a fun, safe place to talk about this mm-hmm. creativity and science, and that scientists are creative and artists are scientists. You know, and that we're all mathletes; like we all understand math in our atoms. Yes, like we understand pattern to our absolute DNA. Like, yeah, I can't um, do
2: algebra, but I can do a P and L.
0: Yeah, well, you know what? <laughs> I mean, it's it's that's a skill.
2: Yeah, that is a skill. Yeah, and
0: there's storytelling in that.
2: Yeah, there really is. The thing that about the the thing that I I have uh, just loved about the effervescence that's about you, right, is this this idea that you you made ice cream an art form, you know, and it's not something that you would go like, oh my gosh, that you know, because a lot of people think, oh, culinary food, you know, that's an art form, but ice cream, right, it's not what many think of like that's that's sort of the thing, but like just look at how the everything is snowballed from you know, when you had your epiphany all the way to what's going on now and how crowded that market has gotten, how, how artistic that market has, has really grown. What's, what's sort of the thing that you're thinking about today? And then we'll, we'll get back to, you know, all of the things that you had to learn, but what's the thing today, how crowded the market's gotten, you know, in ice cream, in the grocery store aisle, you know what I mean? What's, what's the thing that as you stand back and look, what's sort of the thing that you're like, huh? This is where we came, and it's. Do you imagine where it's going to go next?
0: I mean, I would just say that um, you know, when you're growing a company as I was in the middle of Ohio, as a woman who didn't know much about business, and you know, the competition that you see, you know, as soon as we start getting press, we start getting copycats and competitors, mm-hmm. and that's actually a really, really hard thing for a founder to go through. It's just really hard, you know. And yet, at the same time, you also know that it cannot become a trend unless you have, unless you've created this movement, which means there's got to be a lot of people yeah. doing it, not just even in America, but around the world, which has actually happened. Um, and so it's a, it's on one hand it's like the coolest thing ever. I mean, I'm um, talking with women in South Africa who got my book and started ice cream, um, Cairo Creamery in Egypt. I happen to run into them at a library in uh, L. A. And they were like, they recognized me and they're like, we started Cairo Creamery because we got your book. Oh, um, wow. You know, little creameries all over America. But then of course, you know, you see the big companies mm-hmm. sort of almost doing this, this, are very much doing a similar thing and being shifted by this movement of storytelling and provenance of ingredients and really just getting closer to your makers, growers and producers and also, I think paying fairly. It's the coolest thing in the whole world to see, actually, to to know that like. This was something that was a passion for me in 1996. And it was just me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what I was doing. I felt very alone for a long time. And now it's it's this big movement in ice cream, not just in America, but everywhere I go. I mean, I was in Berlin all summer and there's just all these ice cream makers who are in this model.
2: It's incredible. When you decided like, not only this is gonna be sort of my art form and you had the sort of wave of this is what my life is gonna be like, when did you decide it's going to be a business?
0: Immediately, because when I was growing up, my grandparents had a business and it was like cleaning offices after work, right? So just like the small, it was called Medina Maintenance, that was their, the county they lived in. And after my grandfather got home from working at the newspaper, he would set type all day, you know, like wooden type, oh, which wow. is, an, an, I mean, it's hard to believe that that even yeah, happened yeah. in my lifetime when I was a kid. But then he would come home, and they would we would eat dinner, and he, and I was always at my grandparents' house, and we would get in his little truck, and we would go clean office buildings, and they were so proud of this business. And my grandmother always said, if you can't find a job, make one. So I always felt very entrepreneurial, and I think that kids, when you see that, and it doesn't matter what it is, if it's your grandmother cleaning office buildings, or, you know, your dad is, um, you know, some tech guy or whatever, like it doesn't matter what it is, you see that as a path to freedom, you see that as your you know, this idea that you can create an idea of value to people, create something of value to other people and build a life around it for yourself and other people. Wow. And it's a very simple, very powerful concept that kids get immediately. I think that, you know, somebody, like I've heard that, like, you know, once your basic needs are met as a human being, you know, food and love and safety and shelter, water the next thing you, you do is you make things better. You make art, you know? And I always think, I mean, I'm not sure if this is true, but I'm pretty sure because I feel like I'm pretty intuitive. The next thing might be to trade those things. You know, like, hey, you're really, you did that and I have this and maybe I can make your thing better and you can make my thing better by trading. And that's just like so innate to humans. And so this idea of entrepreneurship to me was innate and it became, I'm sure it came from my grandmother. But um, I think that it's something that we need to teach every kid by the time they're eight. Because wow. once you get it, it's a lens. You see the whole world through that lens.
2: There's a great book called The Kidpreneur that I read. as I have four boys and we all have read that book together, uh, just helping them understand entrepreneurship, how math is important, how to create an idea, what's important about the idea, how to make it come to life. I think mm-hmm. it's really important if, if there isn't ready available like you had osmosis observation of entrepreneurship, there are resources out there that, oh, yeah. that can help you, you know, talk to kids about entrepreneurship because that resourcefulness is a really big part of life. It, you don't have to be just an individual, like, like an entrepreneur or a small business owner to have that resourcefulness that an entrepreneur has. Right?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I think sometimes about when I started Jenny's, like, I have lots of friends who are entrepreneurs and I, and I see, like, a lot of the, the, like, sort of business world and everybody's really proud of their businesses and what they do. But I mean, I also see a lot of people, like, I don't know, it's almost like they go into business and probably because parents want this of the kids too, but they almost go into business for the accolades. Like I was so brilliant that I did this. I played the game of business, I, like it's chess and I wow. won. I'm a business winner, right? And they go into business for that. That was not on my mind when I started Jenny's. I didn't know anything about that world. I started Jenny's because I thought, if I can make this ice cream and if I love it so much, maybe somebody else will love it. And if I can make them happy, if I can make one person happy, I can make two people happy. And if I can make a few hundred people happy, I can make a living. And if I can do that, like, so it was really always about creating something of value to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And then if they wanna give me their money for this, then I can live off of that. And then I can have another, make another job and another job and we can grow. And so that I feel like that is also missing from our discussion of entrepreneurship with kids because really all you have to do is make something that first maybe solves a problem for you because if it does, it will probably solve something for somebody else. And then you can start tweaking it right alongside your customers. Yeah. Just listen to feedback.
2: Yeah. Just listen to feedback is a really short phrase. Yeah. But it's probably the most trans, uh, most transformational thing that can happen is if you just start listening to feedback. Yeah, and, and, and listening means I'm going to do something about what I heard.
0: Yes, because you know when I started, I was an artist. I mean, I was or I was a wannabe artist. I mean, I was um, coming from the art perspective, and now my my other grandmother was an artist. Okay, and so my other grandmother Enid would never have taken money for her art. Be, or you know, she wow. would have taken money for her art that she made. But not a commission, right? She's not going to make art because you want her to make something. Like she's a true artist, right? She's oh. going to make whatever she wants, and if you want to give her money, that's great. Otherwise, she doesn't care, right? So <laughs> she also doesn't want to make the same thing twice, right? So she's moving on, wow. right? Which was um, which was uh, absolutely amazing. But she would teach us how to make like a basket or whatever. I Tell the story sometimes. Like we would go to the ditch and you know literally pick the grasses and dye them in the sun and then or dry them in the sun, then dye them colors and make baskets out of them. Every one of Enid's baskets were different. I always wanted mine to be the exact same. Mm-hmm. But I would go to Betty's house, my other grandmother, the entrepreneur grandmother, and she would be like, let's make 20 of these and sell them in the neighborhood. you know. And when Betty and I would do it with my sister, they would, my goal was to make the, the last one exactly the same as the first one. But when I started Scream Ice Cream, which was my first ice cream shop, after I literally walked out of an art class, I was still thinking like an artist. So I was still thinking that the, the whole concept was that I would do something new each day and that that was what you came for. Yeah. It took me a really long time to realize that's not what people want.
2: Yeah, that's not the repeat business uh, model every time. There are a few people yeah. that like that, but those are the, the real early adopters or the innovators. But you if know. you
0: start with what you think is good and you're just open to listening, your customers will tell you exactly where to go. Yeah. You have to bring your thing to it and then listen. So it's really, it is an act of co-creation in that way.
2: Well, you mentioned Scream. And you mentioned, I think it was the next thing on your continuum was how to trade it. And I read this somewhere that it was like at the farmer's market, you were surviving by making trades. Here's some ice cream, give me some food. Yeah, or give me ingredients <laughs> yeah, to make yeah. more ice cream. So. so tell us about that. What was it like sort of like, because I think that there's a there's a nucleus here of, the x factor that you have as like it's like i have grit i have determination right and and you have a i'd say a healthy healthy dose of that and being able to say i want to do this so bad that i'm gonna figure out how to make it work is really really huge but the trading thing is the one that i was like you're gonna suffer for it
0: i mean honestly like i think sometimes people don't believe because now you know it's like it's so many decades in and now i'm i'm I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm where I'm at now, you know, it's, like, it's a very different place than I, where I was for the first 15 years of the company, right? I mean, I lived out of my car for three months, I traded for food, literally traded ice cream for food. And it wasn't that, um, I mean, I loved it, to be honest, I thought it was the greatest adventure ever. I did not ever feel that, um, I did not have a safety net, so it wasn't like I could go home somewhere else. There wasn't one. My mom was um, really, really sick. She had a baby. There was a, it was a hard situation there. My dad was out of the picture. I was really, really alone. And I was just young and I was just like, whatever, you know? I had a super punk rock attitude about it. And all my friends, this is what, you know, I built the company really for my friends. And they were all the artists and musicians and whatever. And I was just like, I'm gonna work harder than anybody else. I'm gonna be here. I'm gonna show up. And this is my adventure. I'm, you know, It was great but also I could never do it again, right? So it was so hard that um, I can even like sometimes get PTSD like if I walk into the market, you know, cause of the smell or whatever, mm-hmm. like it was so, so, so hard um, to be work, you know, to work that much for as long as I did. I mean, it was really, it was decades. And when I say decades, two, two and a half, you yeah. know, but really of, of at least 12 hour days. I mean, I was working nonstop, even, There was always, and there still is, a little light on in my head that's, you know, there's like little Jenny at a desk there with the light on, working on a flavor at all hours of the day, to this day.
2: That's incredible.
0: (laughs) But it's also like- (laughs) A little Jenny at the desk. I know, it's like always in my head, there's always somebody that's like ready to like jump in, but, um, or that's just always at it, but- uh, you know, it's like on one hand, it was the greatest adventure ever. It was just the coolest. I, I'm so grateful to that 22 year old that walked out of class and went and did it. On the other hand, I also know how hard it was and how, how hard it was on my body and my mental health and my emotional health over time. Yeah. You know, and it's like, you know, it's like that's what an adventure is. It has to hurt. Like it has to be really hard. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was both what was fun about it and what was hard. You know to get through.
2: I like how you said, I could never do it again. Mm -hmm. You're know, you like, "Uh, that was a lot. Yeah. And I would prefer not to revisit those moments. One of the things that you are regularly noted or known for is the, I was able, I had to do every aspect of the company. So as you grew the company, you had to know every aspect. So talk to us a little bit about kind of the first few things you discovered and then how did it sort of advance where you're like, oh, now I need to do this part of the company, oh, now I need to do this part of the company, so talk to us a little bit about just the hands-on approach that you've, you've taken.
0: Well, at Scream, it really was just me and there was like a, a young girl in the market, her dad was like the market electrician and she would come hang out with me and we would like make ice cream together. She was amazing, she's like a chef in New York now. So it was really just me at Scream all day, every day. And then at Jenny's, I knew uh, because of my experience at Scream, because I'd really burned out, because I'd been there every single day for four years, that I had to be thinking differently. I had to be thinking bigger, I had to be thinking about what I want to do and what I like to do and what I'm good at. And over time, get rid of, hire for everything else, take that off of my plate. Mm-hmm. And so from the very beginning of Jenny's, that was really what it was about. It was kind of working backward from what do we need? What do we need? I need to have somebody who's going to be doing these, you know, first first thing was, making sure that our finances are protected, you know, so that when our customers give us money, we are doing the best and most with that money that we possibly can. And that was like first, and then it was like you know, various managers and of course people to work at the company. But I mean, I knew I didn't want to be by myself. And I also knew that at some point we're going to need to get out of the market and not be um, just our little stand at the market, so we, we needed to do grocery and we needed to do um, supply restaurants, you know, so there was like, it basically I started working backwards. I was like, well, how much money do I need to make to, I mean, it was all very, very simple math. How much money do I need to make to afford someone to do that work? And then I would like, okay, well, then I have to sell that much ice cream. Mm-hmm. And I would figure out how to sell that much ice cream. And then I would get to that place, we would hire that person and we would get to the next one. You know, and it was literally like, okay, how many, and I was like, how many people do we have to walk, get to walk up to our shop in order to sell that much ice cream, you know? And it would be like, okay, we got to get a hundred people today, like, you know, and that was really how it went for that, those first years in the market.
2: Wow. How did you started thinking about that, but how did you go like, okay, I know that I need to go to grocery and then maybe supplying, you know, restaurants. Those are two really great channels, especially for the niche that you were in. So how did you break in to both of those channels?
0: Well, first of all, I mean, um, when I had this idea to do ice cream, it was a much bigger idea than the market. And so I was thinking, my my whole vision was wrapped around this idea that like, Ben & Jerry's like did it, they were in grocery, that's what I should do. We can do it differently, we'll be, you know, we have a different target and, and make different ice creams, but if they can do it, I can do it. I mean, I just, I had seen them, like I knew that they were smart, but like not that smart like just like me. You know so what I mean?
1: Science.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. So we're going to do it differently than them, but you know, but similar. So I knew that we would be in grocery restaurants. I didn't really know, but chefs started coming to me, which was really cool. And that was awesome to help us spread the word. And even before we ended up in grocery, this is a funny story, I actually, um, I called the New York Times one day and I was like, yes, can I speak with Florence Fabricant? And she's like the the writer of like all the new stuff in New York City. But I'm in Columbus and I, it just didn't occur to me because I read the New York Times food section every week. I read the New York Times you know, on Sundays you know, with my coffee. It was my newspaper and I was like, hey, she answered. And I was like, hey, I just wanted to let you know that we're doing this really cool ice cream in Ohio. And I kind of told her about it and she's like, well, can I get it in New York? And I was like, no, well, why don't you call me when I can? And I was thinking like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense since you write about things that are in New York and not Ohio. And so then it was like, all right, we need um, a website. We need to be able to ship ice cream. And then the Food Network called, so we were like, okay, let's, we have to have a website. So in 2004, we launched our website. And it was also our first Food Network um, appearance. And that launched our website, which is still our biggest store. I mean, it's a, it was a kind of game-changing thing for, to do in 2004 to be able to ship ice cream out of the market uh, that we were making from scratch in the farmer's market. But it enabled a lot of press, it, it enabled a lot. And the funny thing is that Food Network show, we had a party, we all showed up, like a local restaurant like shut down and just showed the Food Network and everybody in the whole community came out. And um, we had started this website, we were like, we we, we cut it off at 250 orders because we thought we couldn't make enough ice cream to you know, to sell more than that. We thought we, might, we got 10,000 orders, I don't know. We got one order <laughs> and we were like, in Cutting the restaurant, we had a computer open, we were looking at it, we were waiting for it, and um, we got one order, but it was the right one. I don't know who it was, but it was like, number one, Central Park West, and everything starts to happen for us. No that.
2: way, it was a New York order? Mm-hmm.
0: And it was like, the address, yeah. I don't know if it had anything to do with what happened next, but then it was like, all of a sudden we start getting tons of media. and
2: That's ridiculous, you had one order, and it was New yeah. York, wow. Mm-hmm. All right, so what what was it like, you know, the the moment that you're you, you probably had a moment of disappointment? Was it days, weeks or months after the snowball really started where you had the one order like how, what when did it sort of
0: like I mean, there was have, never have a, a snowball. A well, the, the, I guess it was a snowball cuz it just rolls very slowly. <laughs> um, you know, it was um we, we thought to us it was a lot. Every holiday was a big season. You know, maybe we would do 200 boxes of ice creams that we Made and then packed and then and then figured out how to you know ship, and that was huge for us at the time. You know, so for me now, when I drive up to our kitchen or the distribution center and I see like the entire truck waiting just to be filled by our team, they drive, they pull a truck up and leave it there for us to fill every day. And I think like to go from thinking that like fifty orders, a, you know, in the holiday season and peak season is like a day might be like massive and amazing. And we were so happy about that. To now seeing what it is is pretty cool.
2: That is, but ahead. it was, you
0: know, yeah. I mean, it was just very, very slow over a very long period of time.
2: Well, you, you know, learned a lot playing a lot of the roles when you were small, and then you start to hit, you know, a moment of build out. That's got a, and you've got a scale, and you've decided on some channels. But I, I think it's really important for you to talk about how you design teams and how important the team is. To success, especially when you're looking to scale a business?
0: Well, I always like to be the entrepreneur that kind of represents the scrappy kind of American start small and build entrepreneurs who didn't go to business school. So I would say that I make a distinction between the word company and the word business. So I love the idea of building a company, a company of human beings and it just so happens that when I started Jenny's, the Lord of the Rings movies was like just starting to hit and I've always been a huge Tolkien fan. So when I saw those movies, it was like, "This is exactly what we're doing." I mean, we're building a fellowship, a fellowship, a company of people. Each of us is going to have a totally different, awesome talent, um, and we're together, superpower. And then together, we're going to create something greater than the sum of our parts. We're going to get the ring to Mordor. We're going to have a vision, a vision quest, and we're going to we're going to do it. We're going to do it with these. You know, we're going to be united by our values, and that's going to be what the company is. And sometimes I feel like. You know, it's as simple as that, you know, it doesn't have to be complicated. Entrepreneurship is really not complicated when you think about it in that way.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you've had to do some, I'd say mission driven things like you talk about a lot of the mission driven work that you do. What is the taking the ring to Mordor?
0: What I would say is that while I think the, the sort of principles of entrepreneurship are not complicated, what's the hardest thing about building a company is staying true to your vision. And keeping everybody kind of going in the same direction mm-hmm. and united by the same values, because when you build a fellowship, everybody wants something, or everybody has like a pet project or everybody has like a thing, and someone does have to kind of decide what gets done and what doesn't and how and what is important for this mission. And that is what is actually the hardest thing about entrepreneurship is and building a company and being a founder and being any kind of leader is keeping everybody going in the same direction. And saying you know no when you have to have to say no even though maybe they're great ideas they're just not for right now mm. you know and so I feel like that was um, that was the work and actually some of the failures of those early decades is like so easy to be like yeah you know that's that's a great idea and then all of a sudden like you know you're kind of bloated as a company doing so many things that aren't really helping move this fellowship toward Mordor you know mm. and so for us you know that was really in a way like you know that, those were those early years of like learning about that, but you don't realize that when you're doing it that it's happening yeah you know it's only afterward
2: well, you know I, I kind of think of uh, two things like framework wise on how you're you're building a company and you talked about uh, values and then you talked about how to decide and I always think of the framework of your values is how you screen people right and who should be a part of the team and what seat they should have and then You know, your focus is how you decide opportunities. And if you can, as a a leader, entrepreneur, leadership team, really distill and crystallize your actual values that you're going to hire and fire by, and then your core focus of how you're going to say yes or no to opportunities, the decision's sort of pre-made.
0: Yeah, it's exactly right. And that's why mission should be your marching orders. Your mission should answer a lot of questions for people in your company. It's an important thing to have. It doesn't have to be complicated, it doesn't have to be on your website, it doesn't have to be a part of marketing at all, but it should be something that answers questions for people so that they can keep going that same direction. Yeah. You have to be very clear about that, I agree. Um, you hire people for values. In fact, people will find you because they know your values, the people mm-hmm. that are attracted to your company, especially a company like Jenny's where we're very clear about our values. That's why people want to work for us. Yeah. And then that becomes our superhero skill is that we get some of the best talent because people want to work in a place where their values are aligned, and that makes them very passionate about the work they do.
2: You know, something that, um, you gotta have some pretty distinct values to make the move that you did when you had the Listeria scare. Yeah. To ha- tell, us, tell us about that where you're like, oh shit, this you is know, Well, that's where your values thing.
0: really, really help. I yeah. mean, we were very clear about who we believed we were. You know, a company that, that cared deeply about our customers, our team, our community, we're a community-led company. We, you know, we, we, we care about quality, we care about safety very, very much. Um, and, and we believed all of that. But we had never really been tested. Mm. And I think it's interesting that when you get tested, that is when you prove really first and foremost to yourself who you actually are. And so when um, when we got the, the call in, in two thousand and fifteen, April two thousand and fifteen, that there was a pint of ours that tested positive for listeria in Lincoln, Nebraska, it was not obviously a call that we wanted to get. I mean, it was devastating. But the first thing that any of us thought about was our customers, because that was what we it was the only thing we ever thought about every day. Already, was our customers? What we live to do and what we exist for. No one on our team thought about finance. You know, it was the furthest from our mind. And uh, and I think that's true of this day to this day. And so what we d- were able to do is very quickly move into a plan. And that's actually really hard when you have a recall like this or when you have this kind of crisis, because if we had thought about you know, finance first, it would have dragged out because we would have tried to find you know, whatever lot numbers and whatever. whatever. I mean, There are ways that you can drag this out legally, and that just doesn't, that doesn't occur to our team. And we, um, we figured out a plan that we thought would really... You know, we knew the, the best thing for us to do is get the ice cream off the market so we could make sure that nobody gets sick. We didn't know if somebody would be sick already and that was terrifying. It turns out nobody was and that's great and we prevented an outbreak by recalling everything as quickly as we were able to do. But that was, you know, that's where your values when your values, you know, when you get tested and you hold them without even questioning them. Mm-hmm. Cuz now I look back and I'm like god, I was amazing every single person on that team. We all got there very quickly and no one questioned it. You know, because it was just part of who we are, deeply, and then you can say that's really your values.
2: Yeah, I mean, and you know, there are times you can operate outside of your values, and it really does something to you, your culture, and things like that. I think it's really a lot about leaders to say we're going to live in our values, and that is the decision we're going to we're going to stay there. We're going to live in them, so we don't have there's there's degradation on reputation issue, reputational issues like what you were just saying. Oh man, we we could have had a a real crisis on our hands reputationally. But you were able to say, because of our value system and because of the way we're going to operate, not only was everybody safe, but we were able to do something really meaningful to to demonstrate to our company that we're going to stand behind what we believe. And then the recovery, because there is a financial impact, because there's a decision to do something and pull stuff off. And then you're like, we still are a company that does need to fund things and still need to provide jobs. So, talk to us about like how the values maybe reemerged and and some specifics about how you faced recovery. In the well, same you know, way and as that's you, the hard part. Did.
0: It's like any and, and all of this has um you know if this is like any crisis that you go through personally or with your team or in business where you know wherever the early stages of crisis are actually pretty easy. You know, I mean, it's devastating, but it's also pretty easy, and in a way, weirdly fun because you you have to be wildly creative. But it's as you get into it, when you realize what has actually happened, that it, um, you know, when you when you can really start to process it. The earliest you don't have time. You're in survival mode. You don't have time to process anything really, and so this is where it sort of you know our recovery took a really long time because, you know, we, we we're an ice cream company. We we're going into summer. And we um, just recalled all of our product that we had spent the entire winter and even like the summer before, the farmers were growing ingredients for us. So those are all gone now. We have no ingredients, we have no ice cream. And it's the warm weather is coming. We also have no money because we'd just gotten through a long winter. And so this was where we kind of wake up and we're like, wow, (laughs) how are we gonna do this? And I'll tell you what happens when you get to this place personally, because I've been there too, and as a company is that the rules are different. And, the, and, it's, and it's kind of this weird freeing place uh, when you're actually at the bottom and you have to like fight your way back from nothing. So um, we had an amazing family in the community that came out to help us financially. But one of the reasons was because early on in, the, in this crisis, it, it, now we're maybe a couple months in, we had to close our stores and people from the community started coming out and leaving us notes on the store, post-it notes. Somebody started this trend of post-it notes on our doors. And they were beautiful, beautiful messages um, from our community. And that made us internally to the company In the company, we didn't have a voice externally because the FDA kind of controlled all of that. But internally, we heard that message from our customers and we felt that, you know, there would be a hole in the world if we disappeared, if we didn't, if we can't find our way back. and it, made us fight harder than we ever probably could have otherwise, and also help the family that came out to help us see that this was worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. And so we had some people from the community that came out to help us. And this is that community values story where our values, which are very well known, our values of community, of being there for the community and, and being a part of the community and valuing community and making people feel loved. We'd done that for so long and now people were doing it back for us. And it was really incredible to see that if we hadn't been that company, we would not exist today. There's no, there's no way we would have been able to come back from that.
2: That's powerful. That's an investment that you made in the community and it's like, what's in the secret sauce there? You know what I mean? Because think think about it. You're, You're selling ice cream, right? And you had enough, I don't know what some X factor to get the community. You talk about being, being community led, and that it's a, a core part of your values. But like, what's the secret sauce there? What was the thing that, that was sort of the woven into the fabric of a bunch of people locally putting notes on your door? How did that happen? What do you think the secret sauce really was for your company?
0: I think that this can be true of any company, and I don't think we were doing it intentionally, except that you know we were just being us, and I think in that we were doing it intentionally, and that is simply. I think people felt seen and still do and heard when they're in our presence, in our space, in our world. I think that especially with ice cream, people see themselves in their flavor and they identify with it very strongly. And I worked the counter for 10 years like I, and I made the ice creams and served them. And I just know that people, when they're at our counter, they're there to get to know someone else better and to reveal a little bit about themselves. And they do that starting with flavor, the flavor that, they come to, that they're choosing at the counter. And I think that we make people feel seen and cared for and heard and, and a sense of belonging in a way that they didn't feel it in other places. And that is really true of the best companies. I actually don't love the word brand. I mean, the way that I use the word brand is, is company. And so what your values are, what you stand for and how you make people feel. And I think it's the way the best companies or the best brands do that. Mm-hmm. And it is so much more than you know your graphic design or the product you put out. It is just how you talk to your customers, whether it's on, I mean, I still write the sides of the pints often. It's how we talk to customers over the counter. It's how we train our team. And in probably the most important thing to this is that, just to, to continue talking about this, this you know, sort of values in the company, when the people in the company behind the scenes where customers never see, when those people, those leaders, those workers anywhere in the company And we all abide by our values. We all show up every day. We create this sense of pride. And so that is the most important thing we do. That trickles over the counter. People who work in our counter hand that to our customers. They represent what they see in the company, not what we tell them. So they represent what they've seen when they visited Columbus, and they visited the market, and they visited our headquarters, and they saw how people talk in the company. And then they go back to their stores, and they are so proud that they want to tell the customers about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that is the brand. I but, mean, that
2: is what it is. But is that the thing fueling like think about it. That ice cream's pretty transactional, right? In most cases, this one is less so transactional. But you're selling in grocery stores too. How do you take that experience and deliver it in a grocery
0: store? Art. I mean, that's what we do. Um, so on our little team, we make our own art. And design, and even if it's not perfect, it has character, has soul. Every one of those pints is designed by Patrick and me, and phot- uh, photographed by, by Erica, and then Beth and I write the pint copy. We also, that team and a couple other people, created the flavor, r and d the flavor, you know, got it through. Sometimes we aren't sure if people are going to like it, but we love it, and we put it through anyway, and um, even to this day, that's how, it, that's how it is, and so we communicate through our pint, through the glass door in the grocery store to people. And when you look at our pints, they are not just communicating that we're a cool company, that we have great graphic design, because there's other companies that have that too. We're communicating that we see you and we have something here for you, Mm -hmm. right? So I always say that I want our glass, like the door in the grocery store with our couple of shelves to look like a box of donuts. When you open it up, you know there is something there for you. They're all different, but you know something is there for you. Mm -hmm. So even in a grocery store, I think um, our goal uh, is to make people feel seen. And
2: is there sort of an ideal way that, like, let's say the first introduction to a, a new customer is in that grocery aisle. What are some of the things that you've seen happen where they have been able to receive that, they, they get it somehow, and then they connect with you in other ways and or go visit a store?
0: Well, I mean, I know that when we open, we, we know that when we open stores in a city, grocery sales go up, not down. Which is sort of interesting, too. Um, you know, we weren't sure how that was gonna work. If we open, you know if we have ten stores in Nashville, like, like, are people gonna where are they gonna get the pints from? Actually, they go up in both places. So it's like awareness is great. But also it happens with shipping. You know people are shipping ice creams to their friends and then they see it in the store. I actually love being, uh, we're sold in a few targets, and I love to like go with my daughter. And of course, everywhere I go with my kids, we like, you know, face the ice creams, and we like make sure they look good and whatever. But we love to just sit there, and, or my kids make fun of me, but I like to just listen to people in the ice realm, whether they're buying our ice creams or not. But especially, of course, if they're buying ours, and just just like see how they're interacting with ice cream, and what they're getting, and what they're, you know, what's exciting to them, and and of course, especially if they're looking at our stuff.
2: How awesome would that be if <laughs> I was standing in the aisle, and you're there uh, with your kids? And all of a sudden staring at you staring at like, which one are you gonna get? <laughs> yeah. Which one are you gonna not get? One, you should try this it's one.
0: I think you look like you. a chocolate person. Yeah,
2: yeah. Okay, well, one of the things about uh, building a team, right, is uh, there's, a, there's a lot of sort of leadership required to build a great team. And we talked about the fabric of that with, you know, the values and the focus uh, that ultimately, you know, have resulted in what you promise as a brand and how you've been able to deliver on it. The leadership is a really huge component. I just want to know, like, from somebody who's been so hands on to go make a move to be no longer founder led and maybe get a professional, you got a professional CEO, or was this somebody that had been with the company? So, talk to me about that decision, right? Where you talk about what you're doing in the company today that's maybe different, right? And how you've sort of built the leadership team. That's maybe a little bit different than the way that you were running it before.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I felt that, I still feel that companies like Jenny's, and there are many kinds of companies, but companies that are like Jenny's with this sort of visionary founder, there's another, that, that is a role, like a visionary is a role for a company. And it's very different than CEO. And there's tons of different kinds of CEOs that you can be. But the way that I define CEO is that they are responsible for the safety and health of the company, you know, on all aspects, right? And so if you're the founder and the visionary of the company, and you're also doing that, that's a that's a lot of work. That's a lot. You're not going to really be able to do both of those well. Mm-hmm. And so the, the founder, the visionary, and the CEO, or whoever you hire to do that work, need to be working together very, very closely. Mm-hmm. And that's how you make it work. And it's important. It's important, obviously, because I knew we were doing so much work, and I wanted to protect it. I also didn't know how to organize the company. I didn't know how to do that. And I didn't frankly want to learn, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I wanted to spend my time with customers, with our team. And so that was the best decision for Jenny's. And I actually think it's probably the best decision for any company, whether you call that person CEO or, you know, chief operating officer or whatever you call them, mm-hmm. um, you got to have somebody who's really taking care of that in your company, whether, it, you know, at first, you know, it was like, you know, finance, that was the most important thing in operations and, and organizational sort of issues and management, that was really, really important for us to like get done as quickly as possible.
2: Yeah, often there's a, a founder and a co-founder, and I would say role-wise you do tend to have a visionary and you know maybe what EOS calls a visionary and an integrator. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that's really important, but that can be hard for some founders to sort of hand over the
0: baby in some respects, right? It's true, it can be, it can be very, very hard, and it wasn't that hard for me. It can also be hard for people in the CEO role or the operations role to collaborate. Yeah. Right because those people are trained to be the big leader, you know, and so it really is an effort on both sides and you have to both come to the middle and if you don't, it doesn't work.
2: Well, tell us about a moment of friction where you're like we had this particular thing and this is how we solved it.
0: Oh gosh, I mean it was constant. Mm-hmm. Just it, it's constant.
2: But what are your what are your rules of engagement then? What are some of the ways that you handle it?
0: Well, I guess it depends on on what it is. I think that when it comes to marketing and branding, I think we kind of have some basic ground rules, which would be like if it comes to marketing and branding and he doesn't agree with me, you know, I win. You know, but if it comes to finance or or HR or you know legal stuff, and I have some questions and maybe I don't agree with him, he wins. And we leave the room united. You know, it's just kind of the way it is. But I think that challenging each other is important and being the type of person who can be challenged and walk away united is the skill. Because that's, that's gonna happen all day long. That's normal in a company. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to bring your awesomeness in, put all your ideas on your table, put all your concerns on the table, work through them together. And then also somebody's gotta decide, you have to decide who's going to be the ultimate decider of those specific things or whatever it is. And then you gotta be okay with that. You know, I mean, you get second, third, fourth. You you can if something doesn't work, you change it down the road. You know, you just gotta make a decision. So it's not that big of a deal. I mean, really, most of the time.
2: Yeah. Well, you've got locations all across the nation, cities, many cities, and that requires a lot of a lot of scale. And something that I think would be really good for you to kind of speak to is was there a moment that You felt like you were growing too fast, or do you think that there's been a really good pace? And and if there has been a good pace, what was sort of the secret to not maybe go too fast or go too you know go too
0: slow? This is always the 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 question, right? Internally too, right? Because we never want to be at a time where we're not challenged, we're not pushed, pushing ourselves, you know, expanding. Um, and growing because that's what's fun about what we do, and yet at the same, yes, when when you get overextended, like that's no fun either. So finding that sweet spot is is really important. And in, in times when we've slowed down, we've actually done a lot of work on the back end to support growth later. And so what we'll always do, and what it, really, it's funny because I, in a way, I feel like I've I feel the same about Jenny's now as I did when it, when we were when we were very small. In that I'm still really excited because I'm still being pushed. Again, I'm still expanding because I'm still I'm still learning. Yeah, and I think I think the company feels the same way in a way. Um, so, you know, in the early days, opening one new store would have been an all hands on deck effort, and now it's like if we open twenty a year, we can do that. Yes, we're all working hard. Yes, it's hard; it's challenging everyone, but we're creating these brand new like training programs and the things that we need to support that, and that's part of the fun that mm-hmm. we're having. We're not opening 75 a year. You know what I mean? Like, we're not on, we are opening what we can open this year and have fun, challenge ourselves, and serve customers, you know, ultimately. And yeah. train people because one of the things that I love the most, and I think we all do at Jenny's, is working with the young people in our stores, or just the people in our stores. Not that they have to be young, but just like people in our stores. I mean, that's just the most fun thing to do. And I didn't realize. Because I'm a nice Midwesterner, generally, not always. (laughs) Um, Is that like, the more we almost expect from them or the more we put on, like they want to be the experts. And so it's really like blows my mind. It's so much fun to give them as much information as we can about Mm -hmm. the ice cream so that they can really be telling stories across the counter. And they were the ones that demanded that. Because I'm trying to make it easier for, for everybody in the, you know, maybe 10 years ago. And they're like, looking up themselves and finding out more information about ingredients so that they can tell those stories. And so the more we can give them, and this is the, I mean, this is what makes this whole thing fun. Obviously creating those processes and the channels of communication and managing all this stuff is not easy. It's very complex. And we have amazing people. We have a great team, but it's fun, you know, in figuring all this stuff out. I mean, it honestly feels like I don't know if you were like this when you were a kid, but I, this is how I played when I was a kid. I loved like, organizing people around this idea, and then we would all kind of get together with like big vision, and, and, you would, and you would just kind of do it. Everybody would do something, and I still feel very much like I'm still doing that now.
2: Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about uh, building the, the company. The brand, obviously, you know, ha- has got a pretty meaningful reputation, well-known. But the one last thing about the, the company that I'd really love to know is like what made you choose the, the chain over franchise? Or was it never even a thought?
0: It has been a thought, except that um, I would say, honestly, in our discussions, it's like nobody would do this. Like, no one's gonna work as hard as we will to do this. Like, just having our ice cream freezers the way that we have, like, the ice cream is on display, and they're American gravity freezers. So that means they get ice buildup around them. So we have to thaw them at least once a week. Like that is a Herculean effort to do. There's just goofy things behind these and we're like, nobody will do that. Well, now we have, and it's also fun to have control. I mean, to be honest, like, you know, you have control as we're building, as we're learning about this. There are ways, and I've actually been kind of excited about the idea of franchising, if we really can make it work for the person who's a franchisee. Yeah. And, um, and I've been learning from other companies that do it really well and thinking like, can we actually create opportunity for someone through this? So it's an interesting, whether we will at Jenny's or not, I don't know, but it is an interesting model that I don't think, just like, just like right now, you, know, you see companies that grow and this word chain gets a bad, has a bad reputation. Well, for good reason, because of the you know, 70s, 80s and 90s and, and what happened there. But actually like to make a food business work now You have to have multiple locations in order to make it work in America. To have
1: the margins you need,
0: and you can do it really, really well. And you can actually build a company like that and make and get better as you get bigger. And similarly, I think we can be thinking about franchising in a new way, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of opportunity, but also in terms of quality and you know team happiness and all of that. So I don't know if Jenny's will, but I, I definitely have put enough thought into it to think that you can create a new model or a new way to think about it that might be very interesting.
2: I want to know about the cookbooks and the James Beard Award. How did those things happen? What did you? Why did you go like, you know what? I'm gonna become an author and do a cookbook.
0: It's well, for one thing, I had just had a baby, my daughter Greta, who will be 16 this year or this summer. And I was bored because I was at home with her and like babies are boring. They don't do anything. You're just by yourself. And so I needed a project and I'm a doer. And so I was like, you know, what if this is, what if I write a book? What if I try to translate all the things that I had learned at the dairy and working in ice cream to a home machine and see if we can have, if we can make something, a better recipe for home machines so people can have the same fun that I'm having, mm-hmm. you know? And I, um, the first thing I did was try to cheat, actually. I called my friends at Ohio State University, the Ohio State University in the dairy science department. I had spent a lot of time <laughs> over there. And I was like, okay, so Professor So and so, all right here's the challenge. Can we make a better home ice cream machine or um, not machine, but um, uh, recipe on the crappy home ice cream machines than what exists now than the traditional sort of French custard recipe? And he was like, "Hmm, no, you can't. It's impossible. And I was like, oh, come on. Like, come on. There was no challenge accepted. He was like, no, he was like straight up. No. And um, so I was like, okay, so I put Greta on my back and went in my kitchen, and I had ice cream machines going all day long, and I was using the same science that I had, or you know, the same techniques that I had discovered in the dairy, which is like um, to, to cook the milk and cream together, and then you sort of uh, denature the proteins, and they, they almost act like egg yolks in the way that they, they come together with water. Water is your enemy in ice cream, and it's a whole chemistry equation there, but I was like thinking like a molecule, right? So how do I tie up the water so that in this home Machine and in a, the limitations of a home kitchen, we can get a scoopable American hard body ice cream that's like harder, you know, they can scoop pretty much right out of your freezer, but also that's, that's stable enough that you can make different kinds of flavors and not have to worry about the recipe breaking. And um, over time, over a few months, you know, with Greta there with me, I made it. I figured it out and I was really excited. And, um, and I still gave Ohio State credit, though, I will say because um, I went back and I was like, well then, okay, here's my thesis on milk proteins that I figured out at the dairy and also working at my stove. Will you please just tell me if this is true or not? Because they don't like to give you information without it. They want you to work for it, which is actually great, and I did. And he was like, yes, you are correct about your milk proteins. And so I was like, okay, cool. So that was in Food and Wine magazine. That was like a three page spread there, and then it led to the book. And the funny thing about the book was that the I ended up with this incredible publisher, Artisan, and they publish like Thomas Keller and some of the top chefs, they only do like 12 cookbooks a year, they keep their books you know, for years and years. Like, it's not just like they put out books then, and then whatever doesn't sell, they, they stop publishing them. So they're an amazing company. But the book had gone to auction and they were the, one of the lowest bidders, but I wanted to be with them. So I did something unheard of in this process, is that I chose them even though they were the lowest bidder, bidder. Because I loved them and I thought for an Ohio girl who wants to do a book. We want to be with Thomas Keller's like publisher, so um, they were like, "Oh my god, that's so cute, that's so sweet, that's so wonderful." And I think they were like, you know, whatever, you know, we got a good deal on this book. Go do whatever you want, honey. And so I went and I wrote the book and I did the book and we designed the book. I did we did the art and illustration with two young women who I would actually worked with at the library. We we photographed it, did all the illustri- everything. And when it came time to like apply for the James Beard award, I was like, you guys are gonna turn it in, right? She's like, yeah, don't worry about it, you know? Well, actually, first we, we were published and it was on the New York Times bestseller list twice. And she was like, uh, Jenny, what the heck? You know, like, and I was like, well, you know, we wrote a book for people, you know, to make it easier for people to make ice cream. Of course they want it. This isn't mm-hmm. just an ego book. This mm-hmm. was like actually worked. And then she kind of laughed when I was like, you know, you're not gonna like, you're gonna put it on the James Beard, you know, whatever nominee or whatever. Yeah, you filled out up form or whatever. And she was like, don't worry, we'll do it, you know, mm-hmm. but kind of like, mm, do you know, Don't whatever. get your hopes up. Well, then we were nominated. The book was nominated. And like the two other books in the category were these massive, gorgeous baking book and a massive, gorgeous chocolate book, like these like life books, you know, and massive books. And then there was my little book and, um, and she was like, Jenny, you don't have to come. You're nominated, but you don't have to come. We'll be there. Don't worry. If you get it, we'll, we'll accept it for you. And I was like, I will be there.
2: Yeah, you're like hell no.
0: Why would I not be there? Why do people talk down to Ohioans? <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, anyone in the middle of the country, people just talk down to, and it's just so infuriating. They don't they don't realize they're doing it. But so I was like, no, I'm coming. So I came, and, and they made room for me at the table, and we won. And like in a weird way, I kind of knew it. You know, I kind of knew it because it was such a book that was like such a, you know, it was like. I think if you think in terms of gifts, like if you give service and art, those are gifts that you give to the world. And as gifts, they're not transactional; they come back to you. You know, when you really give something to the world, it comes back. You know, and if you really think about, you know, just taking all your ego out and just putting something beautiful out, whether it's ice cream or whatever it is, it just keeps going. Mm -hmm. You know, and yeah, it it was a cool experience.
2: That is a cool experience. I mean, it's it's a remarkable story. And you have also the, the whole giving thing, you've spent a lot of time giving back, right? So I, I think it'd be really good to know like how you think about ingredients, right? And why you do fair trade, you know, and what are some of the things you've done to sort of impact society, right? What Just help, help everybody see a little bit about how you're giving back.
0: Well, really and gone. I also have like kind of a thought about it in the way that like, I don't know, it's like, it feels good to do that. So it it doesn't, for me, and for us at Jenny's, and me as a human being, it doesn't feel good to be the person that lets everybody else do stuff. Like if I wanna live in a community that I want it to be a certain way, I have to work for that. To earn it, I have to earn it. I have to go and do that. Otherwise somebody else is gonna build the community for me, and it's gonna be their work, and maybe I like it or maybe I don't. But you have to get off your chair and help, and have a vision, and also be able to compromise and, and help, and, You know, but not demand too much. But I, I feel like in in raising a business, it's like a, it's 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 funny because you, you really just raise the business you want to work at, and in a way, it becomes this like selfish thing in a way, like this pleasure thing. You're like, I want to work at a business where we work directly with growers mm-hmm. and where they get paid fairly, the same way we would pay a fair trade grower in Uganda to grow vanilla beans for us, because local fair trade is also complicated, mm-hmm. you know. And I want to work at a business where we pay people a living wage. Like, I don't actually want to work at a business where we question whether we pay people a, w- a working wage, mm-hmm. right? Or a living wage. I want to work at a place where we figure out how to be, where we you know, challenge ourselves to be zero waste if we can. Those are the places that I want to work. And that's what everybody else feels at Jenny's. And really, so sort of selfishly it means that we attract the best people to work for us you know so it's like can we make an ecosystem or a world where we all just feel good where we all feel like we belong everyone in it and those go back to values and so in a way it's like you know when you say you know giving back or whatever you're like i don't know i mean i just do we just do we build the world that we want to see we are the you know we're just doing it be and the, yeah, um, be the change yeah be the change exactly it feels really good to do that so there's this weird, selfish thing about it, too. It feels much better to be connected. And, you know, then you, like, you read these longevity studies, and they're like, well, the people who live the longest are the ones that are the most involved in their community. Mm. You know, and you're like, well, yeah, because it feels really good to do that, to not be isolated. And I moved every year growing up, so I never had a community. So I think that's one of the reasons it was always very important to me.
2: Yeah, it's something uh, you, you were on the outside of, and then you could be on the inside of it and be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Now, it's awesome. Well, what's next for Jenny Britton?
0: Well, I'm writing a book and I'm still trying to kind of figure it out, but I'm having so much fun with it and being very creative with it and kind of letting it um, go because I have had this like long, very long life. And, you know, it's, I don't know. I feel like I hope that that story will inspire young people that, you know, no matter where you are in America, like you can be anything or do anything that you want to do. So so I'm kinda trying to put my mind on that a little bit. Jenny's is, is gonna continue making amazing flavors and, and learning about people and growing and seeing people and making people feel loved, activated, inspired and you know, doing art and all the things that we do and all obviously I'm there on like like as a support. We have a new CEO. She's incredible. Our team is incredible, so I kinda just applaud them and like let them call me when they need me, <laughs> you know? And I'm always like, do you guys need me today? Like, like, can not, I? Not yet. Yes, exactly. They're like, Jenny, you know, because I can be a little bit disruptive. I totally admit that at this point, you know, mm. um, I like change. I like tweaking <laughs> things better, you know? Um, I so like I, um, So yeah, so I'm trying to figure out, um, I will say that one one place that I work a lot in is in helping emerging entrepreneurs grow and, mm. and start and encouraging people. So I feel like that's a place where I will probably spend the rest of my life as a champion of um, small business, especially women and, and people of color, because I see that as, um, as the way to really uh, build a country of equality mm-hmm. over time.
2: That's powerful. Well, you know, we're, we're glad you came here to, to help the, the listeners that we have. And you've answered a lot of my big questions, my long questions, but I have some rapid fire questions for you now. Mm-hmm. All like- right, if your personality was a flavor, which one would it be?
0: Salty caramel. Because you know, like caramel is a midwestern like America, and it's an American thing. It's like really buttery and smooth and lush and yummy and voluptuous and all of that. But it's also salty. So it's like, you know, I think that's <laughs> I think that's fair.
2: A little salty. <laughs> it is a little salt in Well, speaking of salty, are you a, a morning person or a night owl?
0: Both. Can you be both? Probably Always. I'm more of a night owl, but I do go to bed very early. I'm a sleep farmer. I feel like I'm like I'm about sleep. I like sleep a lot.
2: Okay. Cup or cone?
0: Okay. Definitely a cone mm-hmm. and that I make ice creams to be eaten off of a cone. A cone is like uh, pulls you into the moment, it makes you a little bit vulnerable, and it has this weird magic of extending time, so you can actually slow time <laughs> when you're, <laughs> this is for a different podcast, but <laughs> you can slow time when you're eating ice cream on a cone because you are present with it. And when you're present with that, you're eating it, you're tasting it, you're you're more into it, and you're more into the person you're with. But also, you might get, like, ice cream on you, so you have to be a little vulnerable, which it's makes you a little... immersive. Yeah. yeah. It's not, you know, you can just put a cup down. What's fun about that?
2: Yeah. All right. What is the best advice you've ever received?
0: There's been so much, but also I'm not one to take advice usually because people <laughs> just do give it to you. We're a learning lot. so many things about you. I know. But, um, but this one guy, he was like, you know, never burn bridges. You just never burn bridges. And he was kind of a jerk. And I was like, and he kind of screwed us after like we worked them for a while. And he was kind of one of those guys that like loved to say things like that. But then like, to make him look good when he was like not doing very nice things. So I was like, okay, well, you know, sometimes you have to burn bridges. And like, that was my advice. It's like, okay, his advice, don't burn bridges ever. But actually I've learned sometimes it's fully okay to burn it down and walk away. There's right.
2: a kind way to do that too. You don't you don't have to annihilate or <laughs> send a nuclear device on it. You can, you can always just go, you know I, what? My boundary is I'm not going back on the bridge and I'm gonna burn it.
0: That's exactly, okay, <laughs> yes. <laughs> You can just yeah, you, know, you can just kind of yeah, ghost the bridge or whatever. But um, but no, I mean I do think that I do think that it's important. As um, nice Midwesterners, nice middle of the country people, sometimes we feel like we have to be everything to everybody and like make everybody happy. And and I've actually one of the best things I've learned is no, you don't. And you have to, like if you don't protect your community, you lose it. So you have to like protect it. It's
1: good.
2: Well, what's a guilty pleasure that people would be surprised to know about you?
0: I mean I drive fast. I mean too fast. I, I I drive very I love to race. I love to race on the regular street. And in fact I had to like get a driving coach and go to the start going to the track because it I was just like I can't you I can't it. do that on the street anymore. It's not good. It's not good for anybody. I have a modded out car and I have done racing. Like I flew in a tiny plane to Indiana last summer and we raced Camaros in like Autocross. But always come in last. I'm terrible at it. But um, you know, when you build a company, no matter how, I'm a very calm person, but when you build a company, you're just flooded with adrenaline. And it takes a long time for that adrenaline to get out of your body. You have to figure out how to soak it up somehow. So I work with veterans because they have the same problem. And we, we get out on the, on the track and, and go fast. And it's like, it just redirects the adrenaline so you're not in fight or flight anymore. But yeah, it's a, it's a that thing. that is a
2: lesson. Wow. Yeah. Well, I have to say, Jenny, the the belief system that you have, the belief in yourself, the belief in people, it really is that effervescence that I was talking about earlier in the conversation. It's, it's really powerful, it's palpable, and it's something that is really inspiring. And I hope everybody who watches and listens to this reinvests into the things that they are doing and reevaluates them based on... The way that you just challenged us. So I just want to say thank you for coming and thank you for for being a part of the Entrepreneur Studio.
0: Well, thank you so much. And thanks for just inviting me to Oklahoma City. I oh, yeah. love it so much here. And, and it's just been so much fun to have this conversation. So
2: good. Until next time.
0: Yeah.
1: Thank you for listening to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. For links to the resources mentioned in today's episode, or for more information on how we can help you build, run and grow better businesses, Visit Life, or see the show notes of this episode.